When we were together the last time in this adult forum uh, in the spring, we started, I decided to do just a, a brief study of the Beatitudes, the first part of the Sermon on the Mount, because I knew we had a limited amount of time and we were going to take a break for the summer. Uh, and uh, so we decided just to do something that would be manageable, what I thought would be manageable. And as it turns out, many of you really enjoyed that um, and thought that was intriguing. So what I thought we would do is we would continue on. Um, the Beatitudes, of course, are simply a part of a much larger section of Scripture, uh, probably the most famous part of Scripture, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the most famous sermon ever delivered by the greatest preacher the world has ever known. And so that's what we're going to do, uh, at least for the foreseeable future. And when I say the foreseeable future, if you've ever been in a Bible study with me, some of you I know have in other places, uh, this is an ongoing event. Uh, if you want to know when it's going to end, I don't know. Um, uh, the Son of Man does not even know, probably, at this point. <laughs> So, only the Father knows when this will end, but we're going to give it a shot. Um, let me encourage you, if you haven't already done so, I see a few out there, let me encourage you to bring your Bibles with you uh, to the Rector's Forum. Uh, I'm going to be operating out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. You can use whatever translation you prefer. Uh, some of you perhaps have it on your cell phones. Uh, that makes me a little nervous when I see people on their cell phones and I'm teaching or preaching, but um, we'll indulge you. But I encourage you to bring a Bible with you. You can use the NIV or the RSV. Sometimes a, a slightly different translation brings illumination to the text. Um, but I'm going to be operating out of the English Standard Version of the Bible. So if you have your Bibles, please open them today to Matthew chapter 5. What we're going to do is just a brief review this morning. Those of you who were here for the Beatitudes study, some of this is going to be very familiar to you. And today it will be a little bit like drinking out of the fire hydrant, and I apologize for that. But it's sort of to set the stage, I don't want to repeat all of this information again for those of you who are already here, but for those of you who are new, you need to have this information because it lays the foundation for everything that is to follow. Okay? So we're in Matthew chapter 5, uh, we're beginning at verse 1. And seeing the crowds, he, that is Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I'm going to provide you with an outline on the screen for those of you who enjoy taking notes, whether in the margins of your Bible or in a notepad. Uh, this is just a basic outline. It's uh, an outline for you to hang things on uh, if you want to take a deeper look at what we're studying today. 
Since about the time of the Reformation, it has been customary, primarily in Protestant circles, to speak of the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ in terms of three offices. The office of prophet, priest, and king. Jesus has been properly understood as a prophet. What's a prophet? Well, in the modern day, when we think of a prophet, we think of somebody who foretells the future. Somebody like, a, what is it, a Joan Dixon or a Jane Dixon or whatever she is, or a Nostradamus. Somebody who foretells the future, a prognosticator. But that's not really the biblical understanding of a prophet at all. A prophet is someone who speaks on behalf of God, who speaks the words of God. That's why Isaiah was a prophet in the Old Testament. It's because he spoke the words of God. He spoke on behalf of God to the people of Israel. The same thing would be true of Jeremiah and the minor prophets. But Jesus is the supreme prophet. Why? Because he is not just a human being. He is actually the second person of the triune Godhead. He is the Word made flesh. So that when Jesus speaks, it is literally God speaking to us. And so since the time of the Reformation, Jesus has oftentimes been referred to in terms of his ministry as a prophet, the one who speaks the words of the Lord to us. He is the ultimate revelation of God. If you want to know what God is really like, and this is one of the distinguishing characteristics, incidentally, of Christianity, unlike other religions, Jesus Christ came down. God came down in human form, became flesh, dwelt among us. That prologue to John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh, and what? Dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. So we saw Him, we touched Him, we heard His words. Jesus is the ultimate prophet. If you want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. Listen to Him. Jesus, of course, is also a priest. A priest is one who does what? Well, he intercedes, but more than that, he is one who makes sacrifice on behalf of another. He is an intercessor, that is true, but the ultimate job of a priest is to make sacrifice on the other. That is how he intercedes. He makes sacrifice. Uh, one of the things that's interesting is I'm referred to as a priest. Now, this is something, this is sort of going off on a tangent here, but Anglican priests are different. In the old, well, we all know that, I know, yeah. <laughs> I put my foot in it there, didn't I? Well, Episcopal priests are different. Uh, we know that. Anglican priests are a little better. <laughs> but we all know that a priest makes a sacrifice. In the Old Testament, it was a high priest who on the Day of Atonement did what? Made sacrifice for the people. And he came out with that blood on the hyssop branch and he would sprinkle it on the people as a sign that their sins had been atoned for. In the Anglican tradition, we don't do that. But we do offer a sacrifice, but it's not a bloody sacrifice. It is a sacrifice of what? We hear it every word. That's exactly right. It's right there in the liturgy. And here we offer and present unto thee, O Lord, our souls and bodies. We present ourselves as living sacrifices. It's a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. But that's what a priest does, offer sacrifices. Incidentally, this is one of the things that distinguishes the Anglican priesthood from the Roman Catholic priesthood. When a Roman Catholic priest is ordained, he is always handed symbols of his office at his ordination. The ordination services are very similar, except that in the Roman Catholic Church, once the priest is ordained, the bishop hands him symbols of his office. And do you know what he gets handed? A paten and a chalice. 
Because the primary job of the Roman Catholic priest is to offer the sacrifice of the Mass. And the Roman Catholic Church believes that it is a continual sacrifice. Jesus is literally sacrificed again. In the Anglican tradition, when a priest is ordained, what are we handed? One thing, the Bible. Because our job is to proclaim the word. That's the primary job of the Anglican priest and to offer that sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. But that's what a priest does, offers sacrifice. But Jesus is the ultimate priest. The author of Hebrews says he is the great high priest because he offers the ultimate sacrifice. He is the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. So Jesus is the ultimate priest. He is both priest and victim. But there is a third category. And the third category is that Jesus Christ is a king. And these, this is the one category we don't think a great deal about as Christian people. That Jesus Christ is not just a prophet who speaks the words of the Lord to us. He's not just a priest who sacrifices himself for our sins. He is also called to be our king. To reign as sovereign in our lives. And not just in our lives individually, but the Bible actually teaches, get this, it actually teaches that the kingdom of God will overtake the kingdoms of this world. And the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ shall become... See, that's the whole idea. You hear those words in the Old Testament, you even hear them in the what? Handel's Messiah. And the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ shall become the kingdom of God. So this is the idea, a kingdom of God. It is a major theme of the Lord's ministry. In fact, it is the central theme. If you were here in the spring semester, I, I gave you the story of the Bible in about five minutes. I'm going to do it again. If you want to know what the whole message of the Bible is about from start to finish, this is it. It's about getting, this is shorthand, the Adam Project back on track. All right? It's getting the Adam Project back on track. Here's what happened. God creates a world. He creates a magnificent world. It is a beautiful world. When God looks at what He has made, He declares it to be good. And then He creates, the pinnacle of His created order is what? Mankind. And when He looks upon mankind made in His image, a reflection of His glory, He says that man is very good. So it's a perfect picture. It's a beautiful picture picture but it is a picture that gets what it gets marred by sin God sets parameters man is to be his regent to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of creation but the problem is that man is not satisfied with being number two man wants to be number one the real sin of Eden, my friends, was not that somebody ate of a tree. The sin of Eden was that they ate of the tree so that they could be what? Like God. That's the nature of sin. That's the root of all sin. It is the desire to be like God. What does it mean to be like God? It means to be in control. It means to be the master of your own fate. The captain of your own destiny. And somebody says, I... I really don't want to be God. Really? <laughs> really? Let's think about that for just a moment. You really don't want to be God? Listen, this comes out in so many different ways. 
I was taking my boys up to college just a few weeks ago in Pennsylvania, and I was trying to get to Lexington, Virginia before something closed. And I, at first, we were doing okay, you know, started out early enough, thought we were doing fine, uh, got to Charlotte, North Carolina, and started to run into traffic. And I'm seeing some people weaving in and out of all of that traffic. And I'm saying to the fellow that was next to me, a buddy of mine came with me to take the boys back. I said, where's a cop when you need one? I mean, why did somebody pull those idiots over? I've been known to have a little bit of road rage. So at any rate, they're, they're doing all of that. I never wear my collar when I travel long distance, by the way. But it's just you know, kind of weaving in and out of the traffic. I'm thinking, ah, oh, jeez. I'm just cruising along, law-abiding citizen. Well, then I realized we are not going to make it to Lexington unless I begin to step on the gas. And so I did. And I crossed the county line into Rockbridge County, Virginia, and all of a sudden, I saw a blue light. And I got pulled over for reckless driving by speed. I'm not even going to tell you how fast I was going. But I was so angry. And I was angry at the cop. Not at me. Why? Because he wasn't there to pull those other people over when they were speeding, but I was speeding. And I had an agenda. And by golly, how dare he pull me over? Ever had that experience? You're trying to get someplace, and the light turns yellow. And you know you're supposed to hit the pedal. Which pedal? <laughs> you're supposed to hit the brake pedal, but we hit the accelerator, and then we go through, and then we see that other light. And we're frustrated. And that is the desire to be like God, you see. It comes out in so many different little ways. And the problem is that God takes seriously the business of being God. He is king. He alone is sovereign. And so when mankind sinned against God, the Adam Project got off track. No longer was man able to extend the blessings to Eden because now he was not in fellowship with his Creator. You notice that the first thing that happens when Adam and Eve break that covenant is they go and they do what? Well, they hide. And then when they are found, they do what? When God says, what is it that you have done, Adam? Adam immediately turns around and says, the woman that you gave me, she caused me to sin. Now we laugh about that, men. And we say, ah, it's the woman's fault. And then God turns to the woman and he says, what is it that you have done? And she looks to the serpent and she says, he did it. And the serpent doesn't have a leg to stand on. And so he just kind of stands there. But actually, if you think about it, what was Adam really saying? Adam really wasn't blaming the woman. He said, the woman you gave me. Did you ever hear that? You're the one. This is all your fault, God. And so often that's what we do, isn't it? And so all of a sudden, you begin to see a death, a death creeps into the world. It is a death, first of all, of fellowship. They go and they hide themselves. 
It is a death of morality. They don't want to take responsibility for their own action. They want to play the blame game. And then it is a physical death. And we've been dealing with the consequences of that all along. Now, at that point, God could have washed his hands of the whole mess. But he didn't. Because God is not about to let us and our sin thwart his plan. So the whole rest of the Bible is getting the Adam project back on track. What does God do? He calls a particular man, Abraham. And from that particular man, he calls a particular people, the Jews. And from that particular people, he calls a particular Savior, his son, Jesus Christ, the ultimate prophet, the ultimate priest who makes a sacrifice. And by his death upon the cross, he creates a new Israel, a new people, the church. And through the life of the church, what God is doing is slowly but surely getting that project back on track. And one day, that same Jesus Christ who was crucified will come back in glory and redeem his people. And everything that is foul, everything that is broken, everything that is sinful will be made right. God shall wipe away every tear from our eyes and all shall be right with the world and he shall reign forever and ever. And there is the story of the Bible in about 10 minutes. <laughs> That's the message. That's what we are here to proclaim. And that theme of the kingship of Christ is so central. It is so central. That's what this is all about. That's what Jesus' ministry began with. John the Baptist proclaiming a message of redemption, but also a message of repentance. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God is at hand. The king has arrived. The project is getting back on track. Jesus, throughout his ministry, told parables, and he said the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, or the kingdom of God is like this thing or that thing. And ultimately, it was Jesus' claim to be a king that got him crucified. As he stood there before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, Pilate asked him, are you a king then? And what was the placard that was hanging over Jesus' head when he died? The king of the Jews. And you get to the very end of the book of Revelation, and you have that image of the one on the white horse, and on his thigh is written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So make no mistake about it. This Jesus Christ who comes in great humility will come again, but he comes as the king, and he is the king now, and God is already getting that project back on track. And that's why we say even in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So God is getting this Adam project back on track. The kingdom of God, central theme of the New Testament, and indeed the entire Bible. It's a misunderstood kingdom, however. When most people think of kingdoms, they tend to think of something physical, something like the Roman Empire. Uh, certainly that's what the disciples thought of. Uh, most Jews in the first century believed that when the Messiah arrived, he was going to establish a kingdom. But what he was going to do was drive out those pagan polytheistic Romans and restore the Davidic dynasty, the glory days of Israel. But that's not the kind of kingdom that Jesus came to establish. It wasn't a kingdom with boundaries. It wasn't a kingdom that advanced by force of arms. It was a spiritual kingdom that would dwell in men's hearts. If you have your Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1 for just a minute.
Acts chapter 1, of course, describes that period of time between the Lord's resurrection and his ascension. The disciples have been so devastated by the Lord's death, by his crucifixion, and now he had been resurrected and they are joyous. He had been talking throughout his ministry about this kingdom of God, but when he had died, it seemed like every prospect of a kingdom was just dashed to pieces. But now that he's resurrected, they assume that he's going to really do the kingdom. And they expect that what he's going to do is, again, drive out the Romans and make Israel great again. And that's what is happening here in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to what? Israel. See, that's what they're thinking of, a physical kingdom. And Jesus said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Holy Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power. I love the word power there. It is the Greek word dynamis. Dynamis, D-Y-N-A-M-I-S. When Alfred Nobel made the discovery that would make him famous, an explosive power, the likes of which the world had never seen before, he went to a friend of his who was a Greek scholar, and he said, what is the Greek word for explosive power? And his friend said, dynamis. And he said, then that's what I'll call my invention. And he called it dynamite. So what Jesus actually says here is he says, It is not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive explosive power. When what happens? When the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and finally to the ends of the earth. Jesus is saying you will be the agents of the kingdom. But it's not a kingdom that is going to advance by force of arms. It is a kingdom that will advance one soul at a time. God is going to triumph in the hearts of men. That is what the kingdom of God is all about. Which means that it is ultimately a spiritual kingdom. Now unfortunately, when we hear that word spiritual, we think to ourselves, oh, I understand. Not a real kingdom. Just a spiritual kingdom. Let me tell you, the world's greatest success story is the triumph of the Christian faith in the first 300 years of the modern age. I mean, the Roman Empire was a powerful empire. Christians were a persecuted sect. And yet, in the short span of 300 years, without firing a shot, without acts of violence, but by giving themselves up willingly as their master had done, they somehow infiltrated the Senate, they infiltrated the marketplaces, they infiltrated everything. As one of the early Christian writers said, we have left you nothing but the empty temples of your gods. And they brought the Roman Empire to their knees. To me, that's one of the greatest proofs of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the triumph of the Christian faith in those early days over the greatest empire the world had ever known. Now that's power. And that's a true, and that is a lasting kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom, but it is a real kingdom. It is not yet a fully realized kingdom. That will come at the end of the age. But it is a true kingdom, and it is happening right now. And what we have to realize as Christians is that we are the citizens of that other kingdom. That's what we are supposed to do. 
We are to live as Christians, as the citizens of another kingdom and the subject of another sovereign. Some years ago, I was leading a pilgrimage in the footsteps of St. Paul, and uh, we were staying in Athens, Greece. Maybe I told you this story in the spring. We were staying in Athens, Greece, and we were in a hotel, and we had our organist choir master on the trip. And before she went into church music, she used to play in uh, little cafes in New York City. So anytime there was a piano in the lobby, she sat down and she would play. And every night we would have a sing-along. Well, this was the final night of our journey. We were going home the next day, and we're singing all these songs, and they were doing show tunes. And, you know, she said, just yell out a sound and, you know, a song, and somebody would yell something out, and they did everything. Somebody actually yelled out, do Dixie. And we actually did Dixie. (laughs) And we did it all. But at the very end, she decided, well, I'm not quite sure what happened there, but let me see if I can fix it. What happened then was that uh, we decided that what we would do is go ahead and sing God Bless America. And that's how we were going to end the night. Now, people were going through the lobby, and they'd listen, and they'd stop. But when we started to sing God Bless America, all of a sudden, the entire lobby filled with people. Curious people to see what this was all about. And it struck me. Here we are, strangers in a foreign land, singing out our allegiance to another country. Listen, that is a picture of the Christian life. That's what you and I are called to do. If we really are believers, if we really are citizens of that other kingdom, we are to live in such a way, to conduct ourselves in such a way, to talk in such a way, need to drive in such a way that people recognize that you are a stranger in a strange land. That you belong to another king, the subject of another kingdom. Do we live like that? Listen, that is the only way this world will ever change. That is the only way it will ever happen is if you and I are prepared to live as the citizens of another kingdom. And that's why the Sermon on the Mount is so important. What is the Sermon on the Mount? The Sermon on the Mount is a picture of kingdom living in a fallen world. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. It is about kingdom living in a fallen world. And it begins with these eight blessings, the Beatitudes. We're going to try to go through them as quickly as possible here this morning, because we've already done this in greater depth. They are eight blessings. Now, let me say this much about the Sermon on the Mount. You need to understand it is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. In other words, we are not giving, give, being given an instruction. This is what you need to do in order to get into the kingdom of God. You become a citizen of the kingdom of God by grace through faith. Pure and simple. Paul makes that point very clear. But this is a description, Jesus says, of what a citizen of the kingdom looks like. So if you are a believer, this is what your life should reflect. You with me? So if you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, this is what your life should look like. Characteristics of a citizen or subject. Descriptive, not prescriptive. We are, first and foremost, Jesus says, poor in spirit. 
Now, it's interesting, in another version of this, in Luke's version of the story, uh, it's interesting to note that Jesus simply said, blessed are the poor. We can be, thank you, be thankful for Matthew's version of the story. Because otherwise, we would be led to believe that person who is poor in a state of poverty, physical poverty, is really blessed. But that's not what Jesus means. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. They are a citizen of the kingdom. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? It means to have a realistic picture of who you are before God. Now, one of the greatest parables that Jesus ever taught was the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story. There are two brothers. The younger brother wants his inheritance now. And he goes and he demands it from his father, which, by the way, was a violation of all forms of etiquette in the first century. When you went to your father and demanded your inheritance before your father had died, you were basically saying to him, I wish you were dead. Now, the father could have thrown him out, but he doesn't. He gives him an inheritance, and he goes off and he does what? He squanders it on loose living. The old translation says profligate living, loose women. And the next thing you know is he reaches this very low point where he is feeding the pigs and even longing for the pods that the pigs eat. Remember that story? And we're told he comes to his senses. And he says, I would do better as a servant in my father's house. I will go home. And you know, he goes home and his father puts the ring on his finger. And you know the rest of the story. Now, if you ask most people, where did that young man really have a conversion? They will tell you, in the pigsty. That's not where he had his conversion. We're told he came to his senses. In other words, he realized he was in a bad way. But I would wager that he really didn't have a conversion until he got home. And instead of having the door slammed in his face, his father put that ring on his finger, put those sandals on his feet, that mantle about his shoulders. It's when he received from his father not what he deserved, but what he didn't deserve, which is called grace, <laughs> that he really had that conversion. He really had that conversion. But what is powerful about that young man is that for the first time in his life, he recognized what he really was. Really a wretch, wasn't he? He would be better off as a servant in his father's household. To be poor in spirit is to recognize that about yourself. To recognize that you are a sinner. You know, so often we sing those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. But do we really think that about ourselves? Man, if somebody else comes up and calls you a wretch, how do you feel about that? When the preacher in the pulpit calls you a miserable wretch, how do you feel about that? To be poor in spirit means to acknowledge that that's really what you are. You are a broken and fallen person. That's the citizen of the kingdom of God. Second characteristic is of a citizen is that they mourn. They mourn. What does it mean to mourn? Well, they don't mourn. There are lots of things to mourn in life. Mourn the loss of loved ones. Mourn lost opportunities. Mourn disappointments. But what Jesus is really talking about is mourning our sin. Mourning our sin. Being sorry for our sin. This is one of the reasons why I love the right one confession of sins. Where we say we acknowledge and what? Bewail. Let me tell you something. There is a profound difference between merely acknowledging and bewailing. There's a big difference between being caught for doing something and being sorry for having done it. 
That's what I had to learn on that road in Rockbridge County, Virginia, on I-81. I was sorry I got caught, but I really wasn't sorry that I did it. A citizen of the kingdom of God is one who mourns their sin. They are sorry for it. The burden of it is intolerable. Do you really feel that way about your sin? I had a lady in my last parish who used to say, I'd like to change the confession of sin to the right to confession. And I was kind of surprised because she was a deep believer. And I said, tell me why. Why do you want to go to that other confession? And she said, because I don't think I really bewail my sins. And it's not just acknowledging and bewailing our manifold sins, but also our what? Our wickedness. Oh, think about that for a moment. We tend to think that we are wicked because we sin. But it's actually the opposite. We sin because we're wicked. How many of you, be honest with yourself, let's see a show of hands. How many of you really think of yourself as a wicked person? Okay, a few of you do, all right. You're better off than I am. Um, we don't generally think of ourselves that. We think of ourselves as pretty respectable people. Maybe not perfect, but then again, God grades on the curve anyway, right? <laughs> That's what we think. But a citizen of the kingdom of God recognizes who and what they are. Read through Psalm 51 sometime. Citizen of the kingdom of God is meek. What does meek mean? Well, oftentimes when we think of meek, we think of weakness. A meek person is a weak person, but that's not actually the case. A meek person, the Greek word is preus. It's actually the word that is used for a domesticated animal. An animal that has been broken. An animal that is accustomed to the bit and the bridle. A citizen of the kingdom of God doesn't try to have their own way. They're not always fighting against God. They've been broken. And they are gentle as a consequence. We don't have time to go into it right now, but Moses was described as the meekest man who ever lived. He was by no means weak. But he was broken. And he was malleable in the hands of the Lord. Citizen of the kingdom of God is hungry for righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? It doesn't mean to be perfect, folks. Just because a person is righteous doesn't mean that they live a perfect life. To be righteous means to be in a right relationship. That's what it means. To be in a right relationship with God. Martin Luther once described the doctrine of justification as the doctrine of the standing church. He said that is the, the very foundation of the church, to be justified by grace through faith. Well, what does it mean to be justified? Well, if you do word processing, you know exactly what it means. If you type in in a Word document, and then you go to the pack, you blacken everything, and you go to the top, and you hit the Justified button, what happens to the margins? They line up. To be justified means to be lined up with God. It means to be in a right relationship with God. And how does that come? Not by human work or effort. But again, one beatitude builds on the other. By mourning your sin recognizing what you really are, and by coming before the Lord empty-handed. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. You are hungry for a relationship with the Lord, and you are hungry for a right relationship with others. Listen, 
I'm probably really stepping in it right now. The passing of the peace in church is an important part of the liturgy. And I'm going to tell you why. It's because of what it symbolizes. Notice where the passing of the peace comes. It always comes after the confession of sin and prior to going to the altar to receive the sacrament. It symbolizes that once we confess our sins to the Lord, we are in a right relationship with Him. But that right relationship with God, before we can go and receive the sacrament, means that we should have a right relationship with one another. And that's what the peace symbolizes in the service. To have peace with God means to have peace with one another. And then as the body of Christ, as the people of God, to go and receive the bread of heaven, the blood of our salvation. To hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's what we're talking about here. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God is to be merciful. What is mercy? It is grace in action. Grace, we've already said, is God's undeserved, unearned favor. To be merciful is to relieve the consequences of sin in the lives of others. It's the story of the Good Samaritan who goes out and has mercy on one who was his enemy. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God means to be pure in heart. What does it mean to be pure in heart? Read through Psalm 24. The pure in heart are those who have not lifted up their heart to an idol. That is to say, to be pure in heart means you have an undivided heart. A single-minded love and devotion and commitment to God and to Christ. So many of us have divided hearts, don't we? We're pulled in different directions, different loves. To be a citizen of the kingdom of God is to be a peacemaker. To desire that others might have the same peace with God, the right relationship with God that we have with God. And John Bunyan had a wonderful illustration of this. He said, the church is like a man who goes out and collects firewood. And he collects all of these different sticks, and they're all a different shape. And he's having a hard time carrying them home. So how does he carry home this bundle with all of these different sizes and shapes of sticks? He ties them together with a string. And Bunyan says that is what God does with us. The church is made up of all different kinds of people. We're all different, all different shapes, all different personalities. But what God does is he ties us together in the bond of peace. And he carries us home. And finally, he says, citizen of the kingdom of God is going to be persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. Listen, if you live like this, if you mourn your sin. If you are meek in this world and broken, if you desire to have peace with God and peace with one another, if you live like this as a citizen of the kingdom of God, you are going to rub the world the wrong way. There was an old expression during World War II. Pilots always knew they were over the target when they were getting flack. You only know you're over the target when you're getting flack. If you are going through this world and you're not getting any flack from the world by the way you are living, then Jesus said you better take a good hard look at the way you're living. Blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That's what it means to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. And Jesus is going to unpack that in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. So when we get together next week, God willing... 
we'll take a look at what it means to be salt and light in the world. Now, I don't know if you're exhausted, but I am. <laughs> and we're going to end a little bit early today so that I have time to go vest and you have time to use the facilities and get to church. But it's great to see you here. Welcome back. It's good to be here today in the Lord's house. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for your grace and for your mercy. We thank you that we are citizens of another kingdom and subjects of another king. Grant us the grace to live, to live out that vocation in such a way that the world may see in us something different. And in coming to know us, may come to know him whom to know is life everlasting. For we beg this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thank you, Myron.